and this is the In Session Podcast, where we bring Annapolis to you. I'm joined now by Steve Bonell from our Annapolis Bureau. So everything in Annapolis is picking up speed pretty quickly as they start to approach some of the later days in the session. That means a lot of hearings are being held. Some votes have already been made in the House, and now those bills are going to the Senate once they hit cross-file day. Um, some bills are going through the Senate and doing the same thing to get back over to the House. So there's just a lot of go- things going on. Yeah. But one thing I don't think anyone expected was the emergence of a new disease. You might have heard about it. It's called COVID-19. Um, it's caused by a coronavirus, which is a fancy name for a group of viruses. Um, one has uh, that kind of coronavirus has caused things like SARS, sorry, SARS, MERS, even the common cold, but right now it's causing something called COVID-19, which is the scientific name for coronavirus 2019, named for it starting in 2019, towards the end, um, in December. It first started in Wuhan, China, but it has made its way over to the United States, and it has made its way into the state house in terms of bills and brief hearings. Um, I want to say before we start that there are no cases in Maryland as of today, as of right now, that could change um, even tomorrow or the next day. Here at the Frederick News Post, we are constantly surveilling the Maryland uh, Maryland Department of Health website to find out if there are any cases in Maryland, if we can find out if there are any cases in Frederick County. So we are staying on top of this, but today there were some brief hearings about it and also some new bills. So that's what we're going to start with. Uh, this is the In Session Podcast. I'm Heather Mangilio, and this is where we bring Annapolis to you. So I'm joined now by Steve Bonell, who is in our Annapolis Bureau. So Steve, I know I throw, threw a lot in that introduction, but anything that we really need to know about right now that's going on in Annapolis? I think I'm just going to leapfrog what you said. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about the coronavirus in recent weeks. Um, I know Senator Nancy King announced an emergency bill from the governor's office for $50 million um, kind of just to attack this. That's going to have to go through a specific kind of uh, process to get that approved. It doesn't go through the normal committee process through the Senate and the House, but because it's an emergency bill, uh, it can make its way through uh, more efficiently or rather quickly than perhaps other types of legislation. So in terms of money that the state's going to allocate towards this, again, if that goes through uh, $50 million, kind of just to, as I think Governor Hogan and other officials said, you know, not to cause any panic, but just to make sure we're out in front of this um, and that we're prepared in case, like you said, one of those cases does turn up positive and um, we're dealing with uh, the disease in this state. And just to clarify, To make sure people understand, so the bill allows for him to pull up to $50 million. Right now, he's only doing a supplemental plan for $10 million, if I understand correctly. That's correct. And this comes, um, the $50 million that's proposed is pretty much uh, coming from what uh, many lawmakers call the rainy day fund. It's for instances like this uh, where they kind of need to access cash quickly. Um, and so, yeah, the, he's already, like you said, appropriated $10 million as a sentimental uh, budget uh, kind of approval. But this $50 million is, um, you know, like like uh, like Senator King said and um, other senators on the floor, it's just, you know, meant as a precaution just in case, you know, this does worsen in the couple, uh, coming weeks. So just to wait and see uh, kind of how this develops. I think a lot of it's going to have to come down to what obviously our local health officials see in the disease. And uh, if, if I, again, I want to emphasize what you said at the top of this show is that we don't have any confirmed cases yet. And I think that's very important to note. And while one of the most important 
things as reporters that we need to do with this new disease is strike a, a very delicate balance between not minimizing it because it is something that we do need to take seriously, but also not hyping it up. Um, I've heard from multiple health officials that right now in Maryland, it's extremely low risk for getting coronavirus because there are no confirmed cases. How that will change when we have a confirmed case um, will change. I we, we don't really know until it happens, but it could very much matter if the person ha- gets the disease, stays home, never comes in contact with something versus someone who has the disease and is in public, is in contact with other people. That is all hypothetical right now because there are no confirmed cases, but those are the kind of the situations I think a lot of our health officials are focusing on. But one thing I want to draw attention to is I just listened to a hearing um, held by Fran Phillips, who is one of the um, members of the Maryland Department of Health. I believe she's the deputy of uh, public health services. I, I, I'm not 100% sure on her title, um, but she's pretty high deputy up there Secretary. in the Maryland Department of Health. Yeah. I've got the packet. I've got the packet from the briefing in front of me here. So, <laughs> Deputy Secretary of Public Health, I believe, is what the Public, title is. Public Health Services. Yeah, that's it. Services. Um, but one thing that she said in, is that it is a matter of time before a case comes to Maryland or a case comes to one of our neighboring states. And something that I've kind of talked about with some even the people in the newsroom is Maryland's kind of an odd state in the sense that we do do a lot of traveling. Um, we travel down to D.C. We travel to some people live in Pennsylvania and they come to Maryland. So if a case comes up in Pennsylvania, like or even Virginia, these are it's very fluid state in the sense that we have a lot of people coming in from other uh, states and people traveling all around. So if a case comes to be confirmed in one of our neighboring states, that will also affect how things happen in Maryland. And so Rand Phillips was saying it's just a matter of time. And that's not meant to scare anyone. Um. If, although if you're scared, that's okay. And if you're not scared, that's also okay. But it is meant to be taken seriously. Um, they're saying, you know, prevent this by washing your hands, washing your hands, washing your hands. They say that over and over again. Right. Um, wash your hands for, tw- you know, about the time it takes you to sing that uh, happy birthday twice um, or the alphabet. I've also, if you go on Twitter right now, which... Um, I'm am on all the time. There is a lovely science journalist who put together a Twitter thread about a bunch of songs with 20-second choruses for you to sing if you're bored with Happy Birthday, um, which is a lovely science journalism service. Um, but beyond washing your hands, which is important, you really want to avoid touching your face. That's really the eyes, nose, and mouth. Um, think about it. Those are the ways that you can get something into your body. So even if you wash your hands, if you wash your hands, then touch a doorknob, Technically, your hand is, you know, potentially contaminated and not just, you know, with the possible coronavirus. Like we're also in cold and flu season. So just think about that. People are sneezing and coughing anyway. So and they're touching doorknobs. So wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Um, They're saying, you know, try to do elbow bumps or if you're more talented, maybe a foot bump and not shake hands if you can. These are tactics that Dr. Barbara Bookmeyer, who is our Frederick County health officer, said you should be doing during this time anyway, even if we didn't have a coronavirus right. um, that's spreading. 
but now it's even more important. Right, exactly. Um, I will note during the hearing, uh, one of our delegates who sits on the Health and Government Operations Committee, uh, Delegate Karen Lewis Young, kind of gave you a shout out, Heather, um, because your story, I believe, that ran in the Frederick News Post uh, today, Wednesday, kind of citing that USAMRID has been studying the coronavirus. Um, and, and Delegate Lewis Young just kind of wanted to mention that. And she mentioned a, a past anthrax kind of scare that happened at the fort. And she just wanted to ask Francis about um, any possible concerns. You know, Lewis Young said she's been getting a lot of uh, calls and kind of emails and correspondence from her constituents saying, Given it's very fresh on my community's mind that there was an anthrax leak several years ago and a lab was closed down just a few months ago due to a security um, leak, what would you suggest to me that I tell my constituents so that their concerns about safety, risk, health of the community um, are minimized in terms of testing right in our backyard? You know, Louis Young said she's been getting a lot of uh, calls and kind of emails and correspondence from her constituents saying, hey, are we going to be okay here? Um, kind of citing that past anthrax scare. And I know you were listening in, too, I believe, to this hearing. And um, you probably have a unique perspective on that since, obviously, you wrote the story, but also just kind of given your background. And as you know, you speak so eloquently about this issue. Um I'm sure you have a perspective on that. So I uh, pretty much am joking that I'm eat, sleep, eat sleeping, and, and, and breathing in coronavirus coverage, <laughs> not the disease. Um, and USAMRID and USAMRDC, which is the U.S. Army Medical Research and Development Command, of which USAMRID falls under, is headquartered in Fort Detrick. And there are the other things that I feel like I am always talking about. Um, it's a kind of a double-edged sword having Fort Detrick here in uh, the Frederick community, because on one hand, or one side of that blade, we have some of the, you know, the, the top army laboratory that gets to work on some very interesting and allowing me to be a science nerd for a second, but kind of, you know, cool diseases in the sense that, you know, no one really else gets to work on Ebola or the plague, or sorry, the bacteria that causes the plague, or some one of the equine encephalitis or you know, any of the work that they're doing, Sudan virus, Marburg, smallpox, they, you know, they've worked on it in the past, um, tularemia, like all these really interesting diseases in, in the sense that they're really horrible diseases. But again, no one really gets to do this except for a couple places in the United States and Fort Detrick is one of them. But on the other hand, you do have people who get a little wary. Um, I think uh, Karen Lewis Young also mentioned the fact that USAMRID um, was shut down over the summer for their, at least in their biosafety level three and biosafety level four work, which is um, where this, you know, where you get to work with things like Ebola and tularemia and other diseases like that. So I think there is some understandable concern about having this in the backyard. Um, I would not draw too much attention to the anthrax situation. Anthrax was in 2001. I was in ninth, sorry, I was in third grade, so I was very young when this happened, so I'm not going to speak from someone who actually went through the scare of the anthrax because I just didn't understand it, but it was a very different beast. Um, I I, I think it's fair to say that was not something that, you know, as accidentally leaked. That was, you know, it's believed that a scientist from uh, USAMRIT actually purposely leaked that. So I think it's a little bit different than to say we're worried because they've got samples of the coronavirus. Um, 
The other thing is they're only working on stock preparation, which means that they're really working on replicating the virus and making it so that they can understand it or that they have this um, amount of the virus so that when someone has a treatment candidate or a vaccine candidate, they have the virus to do some in vitro um, testing, which is one of the early phases of testing before you move to mice models and um, other animal models. So it's a little bit different. Um, UCMRDC, which oversees the Walter Reed Institute of Research, um, they are also under UCMRDC. They are not the same as the hospital that people think of when you think of Walter Reed. They're a separate unit. They're, um, they're also working on it, and other, them and other UCMRDC units, um, I was told, are working on a vaccine candidate, um, which is not unusual for groups like UCMRDC to be doing. Um, so that's kind of cool that we have people in Maryland, and that's what Fran Phillips said in a response to Karen Lewis Young's question, which is, research is a good thing. Maryland has a chance because UCMRDC, University of Maryland, and other private labs um, of being the leader in maybe having the first vaccine for this disease, which is something that we should applaud. But I think she did understand some of the concerns. Um, so it is something that it's okay. They they have a sample. I, I'm as someone who's covering UCM, uh, UCMRDC and UCMRED, I'm not too worried about them having a sample. I think on for scientists, that's probably a good thing. You have to have a sample to do any work. So I think it's probably better that they have it than rather that a huge laboratory like this would be sidelined during a big outbreak like this. And, you know, when I look at Twitter, um, people from all over saying, why isn't USAMRID involved? And so this is them saying we are involved. Um, and actually tomorrow I'll be going down um, to attend a uh, press briefing to hear even more about what Walter Reed and uh, other USAMRDC units are doing. No, I mean, I, I think it's important to emphasize kind of taking this full circle that, um, just not to panic. I think that's the theme I've heard throughout the briefing today and, you know, throughout my time here, whether on the House and Senate floor or committees, that, um, it, like, we, we need to be prepared, but I just, you know, there's so much misinformation out there, especially on social media, and it's just important to filter through all of it, determine what is reputable information versus what might be just, dare I say, it's scare tactics and whatnot. And, it's tough to do nowadays because, you know, stuff on social media can be kind of disguised as relevant factual information, but you always have to consider where it's coming from. And I think especially with uh, public health concerns such as this, that that awareness is just kind of elevated. So, Yeah, and so two points on that. One is they talked about stigmatization. This does not affect an ethnic or racial group any differently than anyone else. What we do know is it probably affects people who are elderly there is some possible evidence that elder males might be affected a little bit worse than elder females. But if you're elderly, especially over 65 and over 80, that's when you see higher um, risks of the disease and also fatalities. Um, it does not look to be affecting children as much, which is kind of unusual for disease, as well I've been told. Um, but it does not affect an ethnic or racial group. And that's not something that we've never necessarily seen in Frederick County so far, but we just might not be hearing about it. But I do know I have friends that are of Asian descent and they've mentioned, you know, people are looking at me weirdly or they, you know, people scoot away a little bit more. And that's things that the health department is saying we do not need to do. We do not need to be xenophobic. Um, it's, you know, don't be racist is kind of the, the guide there. Um, and <clears throat> sorry, the other thing um, 
that people need to know is that I think that, you know, the state of Maryland um, is a, is on this. That, that's what they're saying. They said they're preparing the Maryland Public Health Laboratory, which is where we test is the state test um, facility. They are now allowed to test using the CDC test kits. Um, they're expecting that hospitals and uh, private labs like Quest, La- uh, Quest, sorry, like Quest and LabCorp are supposed to be coming online soon. So you're going to start seeing a lot of numbers um, rise. And I, I kind of want to think about it like kind of how they talk about any rise in something um, like sexual assault or domestic violence, which I know is a very odd thing to compare it to, but it's kind of that sense of just because you're hearing more of it doesn't necessarily mean there are more cases, but now we're able to test more. So it's possible that all these cases were out there already and we just weren't able to test. The CDC just ex- uh, changed their guidelines, so it's no longer just people with travel histories or close contact. It's now people who had um, have the symptoms, they're not getting better, and they've gone through all the other tests. So if you are... I mean, that's one of the challenges with this disease is it looks very much like the flu. So if you get tested for the flu and you don't have the flu and you don't have strep and you don't have any other respiratory illness, that's when they might also say, all right, let's test you for the coronavirus. Uh, I think uh, I think we got it covered there, Heather. You uh, certainly uh, know the ins and outs of what is going on. And I think that's going to be a great service to our readers as we move forward and kind of see how this evolves. Just before we go, I do want to say you mentioned talking of reputable sources. So one of them is you can go to the CDC website that is updated with the total number of cases um, every day at noon. Although they do say, you know, states are going to be more update updated than the CDC since they're doing it for the entire country versus um you know each state which was handling itself the maryland department of health is health.maryland.gov you can go there they have a whole page on the front um with that you can click to from the front page on coronavirus um the world health organization if you're concerned with what it's doing globally um you can find information there and not to you know toot our own horns but I do believe that our coverage has been pretty pretty good we're using a lot of experts um like the maryland department of health or our local Frederick Health Department. Um, we're also talking to people from USAM Red and USAM RDC. So we're talking to a lot of um, people who know what they're talking about. So I would say that we're probably a good source to check out too. You bet. You bet. All right. So Steve, I know I just had a very long time getting to talk about something I'm covering, but what else is going on in Annapolis besides the coronavirus? <laughs> You bet, Heather. So one of the bills I kind of wrote about uh, today, Wednesday, uh, was pinned in by Senator Ron Young and is also cross-filed on the House side. And some local delegates that are sponsoring that are uh, Delegate Carol Krim and Karen Lewis Young. And basically what the bill does is it looks at uh, physical education, kind of physical activity for schools across the state. Uh, specifically elementary schoolers, and there are many provisions in the bill, but one of the things that the bill requires or will require if it was passed and come into law is that each week that there's kind of vigorous uh, activity, um, physical activity, totaling 150 minutes. And uh, 90 minutes of that has to be in a physical education class, and then the 60 would be presumably in uh, outdoor recess or kind of other formats. So um, that's in the infancy stages. It had hearings. Uh, it had a hearing in the Senate this week, 
and there's a hearing in the House last month, and I kind of took a deep dive into how FCPS implements its policy, because um, we have policy already um, for kind of gym time and or phys ed time and uh, recess time and um, how it would be impacted, and then also kind of the importance of, uh, you know, children in the system, elementary schoolers, getting that physical activity. That's one of the reasons Senator Young the, is the, he's the only sponsor on the Senate side for this bill, and he said that uh, childhood obesity and kind of just exercise in the schools is a big uh, issue for him. And I know that's something that Senator Hoff had brought up as well, um, and it seemed like uh, he was supportive of the bill, although he admitted the caveat that he hasn't seen the bill, but the overall idea, he's in favor of it. Well, and So just to talk about the number of people or the number of kids and minutes that they have to spend exercising, I think we were talking about this in the office a little bit, and isn't it something that Frederick County is doing pretty well on already? Yeah, that's correct. We have a policy in place, uh, Frederick County Public Schools, that uh, you have 20 minutes per day uh, of recess and then 80 minutes of phys ed, and that's all at the elementary school level. I know when I talk to uh, Brad Young, who's the president of the school board, that uh, he, know, like in the past month or months or year, that he knows that the school board's kind of kicked around having more recess time. Uh, he kind of attributed this to the fact that um, if you have kids kind of getting out and about and kind of releasing energy, that they'll be more productive in the classroom, have longer attention spans. And I know that Karen Yoho, another board member, kind of cited our policy that's already in place that I just mentioned as, you know, example of, you know, the state mandate wouldn't really impact us. It would maybe would, you know, cause some schools to add, you know, five minutes to each phys ed class if it's twice a week, I think is what the math works out to. But you don't know how other um, school systems across the state are kind of implementing it. So that's kind of the interesting thing is the argument about whether this should be kind of a local mandate that school boards take up or if it's a state mandate. And, you know, the need for physical exercise among kids is is needed, frankly, across Maryland. All right. Perfect. Well, like you mentioned, that doesn't really affect Frederick County too much, except that we have some local sponsorship. But what else is happening in Annapolis? Yeah, so there's another bill um, that's in uh, both Senator Huff, uh, Michael Huff, and Delegate Jesse Pepe put in. There's an interesting look at the criminal gang statute. Um, they were, were part of a task force with many organizations over the past year looking at uh, this part of the, the state code. They worked with the ACLU, uh, former federal prosecutors, members of the state attorney general's office, uh, you know, the public defender's office and several other uh, kind of parties to kind of look at the criminal gang statute because many prosecutors had said that it's kind of lacks teeth and uh, isn't re- really usable and that I know when I talked this uh, talked about this with Senator Huff that they end up passing off a lot of the cases that could be under the, the criminal gang statute uh, to kind of federal law enforcement because they can go over and uh, use kind of their RICO statute was kind of the racketeering statute to kind of attack criminal organizations. And I mentioned, I mentioned criminal organizations, and that's important because one of the changes that Pippi and Huff have put forward in their bills is in, instead of using the term gang, they can go after uh, criminal organizations. Um, and that's kind of one of the co- – it looks cosmetic, but what they told me is that that will give them uh, law enforcement um, and kind of prosecutors greater breath in looking into these issues when they um, kind of come before them and they're trying to prosecute these cases. So. 
right. Perfect. Well, that sounds like an important bill to keep an eye on. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting bill. One of the things that uh, Delegate Pepe told me about that kind of change from uh, gangs to criminal organizations is that you know there's uh, an idea of a gang when you think of a sh- when you hear the word gang you think of a street gang you might think of certain demographics, but these um, kind of changes to the law, which includes you know bribery of a witness, um, racketeering, uh, contraband, you know, they add a bunch of uh, offenses. But Pippi told me that they want to get more financial uh, kind of language into that part of the statute because white collar crime is part of a criminal organization. And I know that Jim Trustee, who's a former federal prosecutor and one of the people who sat on, sat on the task force, he said that, you know, the federal RICO statute, which has kind of served as the model, still the federal RICO statute is going to be a stronger uh, model for this kind of bill. Even the bill comes through and becomes law. But he said that that's the federal RICO statute is kind of more from a, a mo- anti-mafia law to you know just attacking you know drug drug trades and whatnot. It's kind of morphed over the years since I think around when it was implemented in 1970. So this is just this bill at the state level is just kind of an attempt to kind of mirror a lot of those policies and just. Um, I think I talked with uh, Frederick County State's Attorney Charlie Smith. Uh, it's, it's definitely, he said, a good, first good step in the right direction, uh, giving them more latitude when looking at these cases. Well, excellent. And I know that you'll be following that. So you can, of course, read all of Steve's coverage at fredericknewspost.com. Um, all right, Steve, we're getting a little short on time. So let's switch over to Kerwin. What is the update on this massive education bill that will possibly affect Frederick County if it gets passed. Yeah, and I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but the question people are still asking is, how are we going to pay for it? I know just kind of sifting through and looking at kind of the news that's come out of it uh, the last couple weeks, that there's been some relief uh, to Baltimore City and Prince George's counties in terms of the amount of money that they're going to have to pay. Um, but the problem is, is that uh, this kind of sales tax proposal that you and I have talked about on the show, which would essentially lower the sales tax rate from 6 to 5%, but why in the scope of services? That's faced heavy opposition. Um, and it's it seems, frankly, from my view, that that's doubtful that that's going to th- go through. I know Delegate Ken Kerr, who's one of our uh, local delegates who represents kind of the area south of the city of Frederick, he just tweeted out today that he's not going to vote for it because he's got a lot of calls and opposition. Uh, and he just feels that, you know, one of the things that lawmakers have said is that they've already funded the three years of Kerwin and that they shouldn't rush to uh, this kind of funding formula because, again, a lot of people just view this as a tax increase, even though it's not income or property tax. Well, that'll definitely be something to follow on. Uh, besides, you know, funding or another way of funding, Kerwin, are there any, you know, concerns about what the actual bill might do in terms of education reform? Uh, I haven't heard much um, rebuttal or kind of opposition uh, to that. I know when I wrote kind of my long piece on this that some Republican leaders think that it doesn't do enough to kind of close the gap between the worst schools and the best schools. And I I think that's probably still a prevalent um, issue that they have, uh, given that 
the policy of the bill from when I first reported on it remains pretty much unchanged. I know that there have been some markup sessions between lawmakers as they kind of sift through it. And the bill itself uh, is probably going to face a vote in the House in the next week or two before it comes over to the Senate. But I know that that's going to be the, the this Kerwin bill is going to be, you know, it's something everyone's talking about. And once it hits the floor, I'm sure there's going to be a healthy debate, not only on funding, but on policy as well. All right. Perfect. Well, we will check in again with that um, next week, because I know that is something that has a lot of attention down in Annapolis. Um, but before we go. I know that you've been tweeting out some quirky things that you found in Annapolis. So what is something that's unusual, fun, or quirky from this week in Annapolis? Yeah, and I actually got some uh, reaction from the delegate that I tweeted at about this. So Delegate Kumar Barbe, I probably butchered that name, maybe, maybe not. But he's the chairman of the Environment and Transportation Committee on the House of Delegates side. And whenever he rises each uh, floor session, you know, they end it with kind of committee announcements for when the bill hearings are. And he stands up and... And he kind of does this thing where he kind of flings the microphone um, or kind of just swiftly grabs it and just like has this like very specific posture. And that just kind of caught my eye. Um, he's also also got a very, he tweeted at me, he's like, uh, I have a very deep, distinctive voice. And that is fairly true. Um, but I will say that delicate Luke Clippinger, who's uh, chair of the House Judiciary Committee, definitely has the deepest booming voice of any chair um, here in the House or Senate. Um, but yeah, it's funny to see the personalities of the delegates and senators down here and what you what you see. Um, and again, just kind of uh, Delegate Barbie's kind of swift kind of move whenever he picks up the microphone for a committee announcement is something that's, that's just caught my eye since I've been down here. Absolutely. Well, you know, we all talk about mic drop. I, I don't think we talk about mic pickup, so right. there's a new <laughs> <Exactly>. one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely... Uh, I called it a signature move, and I know Barbie tweeted back at me, so I'm glad someone noticed my signature move. So um, it, it was just kind of a it's, – it's, it's just a quirky little thing, like you said, that uh, I just have noticed in my time here. Perfect. Well, Steve, I know that you probably want to get um, home from Annapolis. Um, I am going to go get back to reporting on coronavirus uh, and the flu and all the other things that I get to report on. Um, but thanks so much for filling us in on what's happening in Annapolis this week, and we will talk to you next week. Heather, thanks as always. The In Session podcast is produced by me, Heather Mangilio from Frederick, and Steve Bonell in Annapolis. It's edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you next week.